Welcome back to another episode of GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. Let's face it, we're all sick and tired of hearing about the COVID-19 pandemic. But for all the talk about going back to normal and living with the virus, it's easy to forget that there are hundreds or even thousands of other viruses out there that could send us back to square one, or even worse. So how do we make sure that we don't end up facing another pandemic anytime soon? Our special guest this week is one of the world's leading experts on viruses and viral diseases, John Mazette, Professor of Epidemiology and Disease Ecology at the University of California, Davis. We spoke with Jana about the project she's leading that seeks to identify all future pandemic threats by 2030, and about the lessons we can learn from COVID to prevent the next pandemic. This episode originally aired back in December 2020, but we're sure you'll agree it's still an extremely important and relevant topic. So without further ado, over to Jana and our host, Gabrielle Lipton. So welcome, Dr. Jana Mazette who is one of the most renowned leaders of the One Health Movement. For the past decade, she served as the global director of the $200 million epidemiological research project called PREDICT, which discovered more than 100 new coronaviruses. And now she sits on the board of directors of the Global Virome Project, which is one of the most preeminent global initiatives for emerging infectious disease prevention, which will run for the next 10 years and seeks to identify all potential zoonotic viruses. In 2013, she was elected into the US National Academy of Medicine, and she teaches at the University of California, Davis. So I could go on about her accomplishments in this field, but we're all here to hear from her. So Jana, let's just jump in. What are your predictions about a next pandemic? Uh, When will it come? Where will it come from? What type of virus can we expect to see? I just wanted to thank you for having me and um, the audience for this uh, great forum. Um, And the bottom line to answer your question is that we don't know. And I think that's super important. It's important to recognize that there is so much yet to be discovered and that if we don't get busy doing that, finding those viruses and understanding the transmission risks and the circumstances in which they occur, we can't modify our behavior to protect ourselves from getting them. So if we wanna make predictions, we certainly have a lot of information about what's happening in the world that is driving uh, the transmission and the spillover of these new viruses into people. And that has a lot to do with how we use the planet, but we won't know what the next one is until it hits us, unless we get prepared and find out about those viruses and mitigate our risk. So this is exactly what the Global Virome Project seeks to do, and it wants to create a comprehensive database of all potential zoonotic viral threats, which is a very big goal. So how long would it take to create such a database, and what kind of defense or offense would it give us against pandemics if we have such a database? Great. So um, as you mentioned, thank you for that very kind introduction. As you mentioned, um, I I did have the honor of running the PREDICT project, which was funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development. And it worked in some of the most vulnerable places in the world for this spillover risk. Um, And those places include places where the human population growth is just burgeoning, and we have a lot of biodiversity, and we're changing the way we use the land. So landscape change is a critical factor. 
Um, and um, what we learned by doing that is we can understand how many viruses, how many samples we have to take to find the viruses in their hosts. So for example, for this terrible pandemic that we're all enduring right now, we um, weren't working in the part of China where the spillover, the first spillover likely occurred, but we were working in other places in the world and understanding where these types of SARS-related coronaviruses come from and um, what species they come from. So we know exactly how many uh, samples we need to test until we kind of flatten the curve. I know we talk about flattening the curve a little bit differently, but so that we flatten the curve and say, wow, we've, we've saturated our discovery. We found all the viruses in that species. And when we do that, um, we get a really good idea of all the virus that's available to transmit to us. And then we can rank them and um, understand their risk. So we know how much that would cost if we look at every potential host species in the world. Um, and we know that, that if a global coalition comes together and countries work on their own country and contribute to that database, we can achieve that knowledge base that will help us identify all the circumstances, prevent the spillovers is ideally the goal. But in addition, it tells us the distribution, where these risks are occurring, how we might um, protect ourselves and gives us a rich viral catalog from which the virologists can work to identify targets for vaccines, how we do diagnostics, get all of those pipelines prepared in advance so that we're not chasing after it as we have been on this one. Mm -hmm. It would be an incredible comprehensive resource. And the Global Virome Project has estimated that it would take about US $4 billion to fund such an effort. Uh, how is it going raising this money and why is it difficult to raise what seems like pennies to prevent future pandemics? Yeah, and frankly, we could find almost all of the really risky ones for about one billion. So if you put that into context of um, understanding that uh, before the SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, pandemic, we were spending on the order um, of about uh, $40 billion every time we responded to a large outbreak. Um, so we, of course, think about MERS and SARS and um, H1N1 influenza and um, the terrible uh, West Africa Ebola outbreak. So that we were really thinking about, we're talking about less than 10% of a single outbreak spread over 10 years with countries working together. Now we're talking in the trillions. Before we get done, we might get up to $40 trillion that the world has lost, not to mention the devastating lives lost, right? Um, so it's less than 0.01%. Uh, to actually find the viruses in advance. Um, why it's hard to raise that money um, is because our, the way our political systems work, we deal with what's right in front of us right now or what just happened to us. Uh, it's human nature to deal with those things rather than to look forward and say, well, let's get ahead of this one. Um, and I think that's likely to change now. And we've already seen huge amount of resources going to many different uh, budgets around the world. And, and to be clear, we're not saying we need like 
not the board of the GVP doesn't need to hold those funds or raise those funds. Those are just funds that countries, if all the countries collaborated and those countries that didn't have the resources um, help out their neighbors as USAID does from the US's perspective, um, that's about what it would cost to do it in a finite timeline. Mm -hmm. And what does this research project actually or process actually look like on the ground? What does it entail to identify potential emerging infectious diseases? Yeah, again, luckily we had this $200 million investment that has developed all the standard operating procedures, translated those into um, many different languages and road tested them in uh, 35 countries around the world. So in the PREDICT project, we were only able to look at bats, non-human primates and rodents, and then people. Um, and what we need to do with the Global Virome Project is expand the countries, the interfaces, and expand it to all the potential wildlife hosts. Um, what that takes is a trained, safe workforce, people who are really good with PPE and biosafety and biosecurity, working in their um, ecosystems, identifying the, the high-risk transmission interfaces, taking lots of samples. We took uh, almost 160,000 individual animals and people were sampled in the PREDICT project to do the proof of concept, to even know if we could do this and figure out how to do it and the cost. Um, once you get those samples, you need to have laboratories that are ready, um, willing, and able, and we have all the laboratory protocols, so we know that can be be in the least resource labs in the world can do this work now um, because of technological advancements and the pre-work that's been done. So then you have to get in and detect and discover virus. And it's not just discovering the ones that we ha don't know yet that are new to science, but it's also understanding where those bad actors are. Um, and so, for example, in PREDICT, Marburg virus that causes deadly outbreaks, um, primarily in East Africa, we found it in West Africa. So the clinicians in West Africa, just like with Ebola for the three most devastated countries for the outbreak, haven't been looking for uh, Marburg. Now they're looking for Ebola, but the outbreak got so out of control because they weren't looking for Ebola. So this project also will allow that um, risk uh, to all be characterized. And, and another important thing is when we understand the host that we find these viruses in, we don't necessarily have to find the virus in every landscape because we can look at the host range, uh, the home range for those hosts and figure out um, where risk is. And we've done that obviously already knowing that um, SARS-related coronaviruses are primarily in rhinophilid and hippocytorid bats. We can overlay that um, home range of those bats and know that actually it's not just China, it's also most of Southeast Asia and part of South Asia that probably have uh, regular small spillovers that don't turn into terrible disease of these SARS-related coronaviruses. Mm -hmm. So so there's a lot to be done, but, it, but the great thing is we know it's doable. It's completely feasible. Oh, that's amazing. And you're talking a lot about species and landscapes and habitats. And to switch gears just a little bit, we're entering into a new decade and a new decade for climate and environmental protection policy on the global scale as well. Um, the post-2020 frameworks are coming up on numerous ends. So how do you hope uh, the research that you're doing feeds into 
environmental protection policies, global frameworks, et cetera. Yeah, it's it's critical because I, I want to emphasize that viruses that cause these deadly diseases and terrible epidemics and pandemics, they aren't out there lurking, just waiting and jumping into us, right? It is actually humans, our behavior and how we treat the earth that puts us at risk. So um, the drivers that are causing all of the environmental damage are the same ones and are synergistic with the environmental problems we see. So we really need to use the One Health approach as you thank you for in the introduction mentioning that. That's where we take the brightest minds working in different disciplines coming together and thinking about this. So we need to think about environmental engineers. We need to think about the agricultural sector. We need to think about how we use the planet because it is how we push and shape Unfortunately, humans are really influential on our landscapes and that causes uh, big problems, including for disease. In fact, I think that disease is one of the, the most time relevant uh, aspects we can see with climate change. Um, we've been able to document viruses that never were in the Pacific Ocean and wildlife in the Pacific Ocean coming across uh, as the polar ice cap melts and infecting animals in the Pacific Ocean. So we're seeing health impacts from uh, climate change and climate variability right now. And I think that's something we can use to bring home to people um, that these, these impacts are not just generations away, they're happening now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's real time feedback. And I think people are starting to wake up to that a little bit, but probably not enough. Um, so taking, uh, taking it back just a little bit, there's plenty of research happening on coronaviruses shortly before COVID-19 broke out, uh, including the work of PREDICT and other programs. So we were in reach of it feasibly never happening. How did the research community react when it nevertheless did break out? So I, I, um, I might just quibble with you tiny bit on plenty. Uh, I don't think there was plenty of research. Obviously, we needed much, much more. And we needed the global coalition, like I'm describing for the Global Viron Project, um, where every country is participating or all that can are participating. Because it's not enough to just work in a laboratory on a coronavirus that came out before. And that's the majority of what had been happening. Certainly, our PREDICT project and a few other smaller projects were looking for coronaviruses, trying to find them in advance and contributing those viruses to the scientific community so that others could work on them and um, try to understand them better and come up with um, treatments like remdesivir was tested on some of the coronaviruses that we found. Um, novel vaccine pipelines were tested on other viruses, not coronaviruses, unfortunately, but were tested on um, some of our, uh, the filoviruses that we found. So that was just starting, but frankly, it was kind of like the wild, crazy fun things that researchers were doing, not, not our core team, but a lot of people saw it as an aside, like, wouldn't this be interesting? Let's work on this as a, it, it wasn't a well-funded area. Um, and so a couple of things um, happened during the pandemic. One is 
people got interested again in coronaviruses. So there was a lot of interest back when, when the first SARS happened, uh, which thankfully didn't turn into this one, um, the way that, that we're dealing with now. Um, but, uh, but as I mentioned, that faded, right? People's interest fades over time. We can't let that happen again. So, so the, the people that had been working in, in coronaviruses immediately started working together in ways that I've never seen the scientific community come together in the past. People set aside um, differences or worries about credit and work together in a really beautiful way, frankly, um, because we recognize that the human population as a whole, as a globe, was facing something terrible. Um, that said, there were very quickly political impediments to that collaboration. Um, and I think scientists like people I work with have been fighting those political impediments and working hard to try and maintain our collaborative relationships, but there have been a lot of challenges. Um, with that uh, because of political will, because of kind of nationalism, um, people not wanting to be blamed or whatever, throwing up um, barriers. So I hope we can overcome those. Mm -hmm. And you've talked a lot about the need for international collaboration to put together such a database and to do such research. Meanwhile, we have seen a lot of nationalism and borders closing and yeah, uh, political squabbles go on throughout this pandemic. So what would you like to see happen at the international stage? Uh, what kind of platform or new initiatives or what would you like to see more of that's already ongoing to bring the international community together to research and fight pandemics? Well, I think first and foremost, we need the political will to make um, a huge effort for our citizens to trust science. So I think it's easy when things aren't going well, you know, uh, intensive care units are filling up again and people will say, well, the science hasn't helped us or something like that. And and really the science and the scientists have been trying to help, but, but um, we need the leaders to uh, work together with the scientists and really support the scientists so that we can have um, really strongly uh, evidence-based solutions when we get into this terrible tragedy, but also um, preventive solutions. And so I think it's the, the scientists need to speak more and speak clearer and, and better with uh, other communities, including the policymakers, and then we need to see the policymakers come together. I do think we need the international collaborative organizations. Um, I I know um, that it, it's probably you know the WHO is is really one of the flashpoints for this discussion, and and we all need to be supportive of the WHO. But we also can do initiatives as have happened that are supported by WHO, but are independent um, coalitions like we're trying to build with the GVP. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll ask one more question and then we'll go to questions from the audience. Okay. Uh, so anyone who's listening, if you have questions, please ask them in the question box. Um, but a lot of our audience here at the Global Landscapes Forum is uh, young professionals and people coming up in their careers in these fields, ecological, planetary health, human health. Uh, what advice would you give to young professionals entering fields of health right now? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great one, and thank you for that. And I will uh, I should just mention that um, right now my primary effort is in the workforce development. Um, so we have a new U.S. Agency for International Development project called the One Health Workforce Next Generation, and we're working with more than a hundred faculties as well as ministries. Again, not in the U.S., but in partner countries for USAID um, to build a strong and collaborative workforce across multiple disciplines. So my first and foremost uh, piece of advice is build yourself a cadre or a cohort of, um, of colleagues that are different from you. It's great to have colleagues that are in your same area and it's easier to build those because you tend to train with them or then go on to um, uh, be in uh, a position or a workforce with people like yourselves, spread out and find colleagues that are different from you that have different knowledge bases that you can collaborate with. I think that's first and foremost. Secondly, is I think we really need to be thinking about inequities. Um, a lot of what has driven um, this spillovers throughout history, as well as the problems that occur after a pathogen spills over um, or in all other sort of landscape areas, is that um, we, uh, we really don't um, work together and um, we don't, uh, we try to solve it with the knowledge in our heads or inside our discipline. And we need, really need to cross the aisle and think about how these, uh, all the different parts of the planet work together. Um, so uh, I think that those are two really important things that, that we all can do. And it's also fun and enriching for your personal and professional career. Great, thank you. Uh, so here's a question. Um from the audience, what are the main difficulties for the scientific community when trying to collaborate with governments on disease prevention? Um, I don't think that we have a problem collaborating when there's not a tragedy. I think the obstacles come uh, when uh, there wasn't a good enough a plan ahead of the tragedy. So the scientists might sit and make their plan. The government might make a separate plan. They're not always informing each other, um, though we do better at that time point. And that's what I'm really advocating for is that we get together and we work on the pre-plan um, and so that there is a good evidence-based plan that can be adaptively managed once a tragedy starts. What happens once a tragedy starts is often the political and economic sides come into it, which they always will. Uh, and um, sometimes that, that can dampen down the science side uh, and override the science side. And that I think is the big mistake uh, that was made, especially in countries that that are suffering the worst, including my own. And and I, I'm sorry, I kind of lost my train on the last one about inequities, but um, inequities are really, you know, where people have less of everything, nutrition, access to healthcare, access to education, all of those things is where we see um, the biggest problems um, and people uh, living in close proximity to things like deadly pathogens and not being able to interact with the scientific community and their policymakers, they have less access to us. 
Um, so I really think community engagement is another key point, understanding what kinds of actions and interventions are going to be um, accepted and feasible uh, with our communities is critical. Mm -hmm. uh, so another question a bit related is, uh, what's the difference between research initiatives happening in the global north versus the global south? How are the two regions um, uh, working together and collaborating on this or not? Well, I, I work um, mostly, I guess, and, and they're not all south of the border, but philosophically, I understand the question is the philosophical global south. Um, I, I work mostly in those areas. Um, I do consult and do things in North America and Europe, but I will say that I think North America and Europe, frankly, um, are behind. Uh, the. And that might be surprising to many, but I think that um, philosophically lower and middle income countries that tend to be in the tropics um, are uh, actually much, much more aware of zoonotic diseases or those those things that can transmit between people and animals, as well as the points that I made about inequities and um, difficulties in getting access to um, healthcare and having strong health systems. So I think they're ahead in their thinking and planning, um, not necessarily in their resource ability to respond, but I think we need to be listening um, and learning much more as, as I have uh, benefited so much from my colleagues uh, in the LMICs and the learning there. And, and I think, again, we, did, we haven't been focused on those kinds of problems in the global north. We think we're protected, we're safe, we're in that some sort of clean environment. Um, it's time that everyone realize we're one global community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, another question is about um, funding and raising funding. Do you expect to see more any coming from private finance or business, or is it mainly public funds that are sought after to seek this sort of research? Well, I would hope so. And we certainly have been in discussions with major entities and, and um, groups like CEPI, and the Global Viral Project, we support each other. Um, we're working also with uh, the big Trinity Challenge coming out of the UK for this, um, this area. So we're seeing um, the, the private citizens and the private sector uh, getting more involved and um, wanting to do uh, the global good, but also wanting to find their niche where they can really provide um, the most support, not just financial, but also technological and others. So I'm, I'm um, feeling optimistic about that. Uh, but I think that philanthropy has still been kind of focused on the world's existing problems, which is very good and super important. Um, but we need to be, if we're really going to save the planet <laughs> from a landscape perspective, including diseases that affect people and animals, I think we need to be thinking more proactive. And that, that's a harder, uh, harder hill to, to go up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And speaking of landscapes, one of our listeners is asking about how the intensification of zoonoses is related to um, agricultural landscapes and specifically industrial farming, food production, animal uh, agriculture. Uh, how do we deal with that? 
Well, I can give you, it's a great question. I can give you a couple of examples. One is um, we know that when animals are in uh, high density, just like people in high densities in urban areas, we have uh, the, the likelihood of amplifying disease, right? So if we're in just purely by contact, you know that disease can be transmitted more easily because there are more effective contacts. But it's above and beyond that. It's the stress of close quarters, um, the stress of being, uh, you know, forced together um, that uh, really changes our, our systems. Um, so our immune systems and other systems react and make us, interestingly, both more susceptible to disease and also more likely to shed um, organisms are our microbiota that may be pathogenic to other susceptibles. So weakened people with weakened immune systems, other species that may be naive. So, um, so there is a certainly a an issue around intensification of people and animals in any circumstances. Now that said. I will, uh, and we saw that with coronaviruses in the human food value chain, actually rodents are, are um, trapped and then farmed in Southeast Asia. And we found that rodents in um, the wild, it, from where they were sourcing and trapping um, in Southeast Asia, these rodents, they had about 20% had coronaviruses. By the time they got to a large market, um, they were up to the 30 percentile range and starting to increase. And sadly, where the, we found the highest prevalence of coronaviruses were in restaurants where those rodents were cooked and fed mm -hmm. to customers. So we can see that along that human food value chain. Now, though, if we go out and we sample these interfaces, the, the places in, in, um, the landscapes that we find the most virus circulating is where landscapes are being altered actively. So it's not just that we have a, a new huge farm, um, it's the act of changing the landscape from what was potentially more pristine into that farming situation. So um, it, it we find, it's a little paradoxical for some scientists that we sometimes find a lot less virus in the more pristine biodiverse areas because um, they just, we all have our microbiota, we just may not be stressed enough to be shedding it. But when you start to alter those systems, which is kind of at that buffer between the very pristine and urban or the, or the most, um, you know, uh, converted landscapes. It's in the middle where the landscapes are actually being changed that we see the most danger of spillover risk. Great. And then our last question for the day is, uh, you talked before about how we need to keep awareness up. And as people get vaccinated and are so eager to go back to normal lives again, uh, what changes would you like to see uh, maintained to help keep people safe, uh, prevent future pandemics? Well, first and foremost, I think um, we just need to think more proactively and be better prepared. We need the government systems, the science, just like you so nicely mentioned, need to work together. The government systems in big, in the, in, again, I'll use the global north philosophically, 
um, ha tend to have very siloed systems. And so one group is not speaking to the other, even within a government. And that caused a lot of trouble um, where in some uh, low and middle income countries, they were much more nimble and working together and, and are seeing better outcomes. So, um, so moving forward, I think we need to really think about how our systems are structured and work on the collaboration. And again, if the young professionals in the audience can start that from the beginning of their career, being collaborative and working across disciplinary lines, it will help a lot. Um, on top of that, I think that we need to learn from the silver linings of this terrible situation. We're all missing each other, missing human contact, but there are a lot of things we can learn about protecting ourselves and protecting the planet. We don't need to, I, before this happened, I was traveling about half of the time um, internationally. I now, um, I knew, I guess, that I didn't necessarily need to do that, but the world and society was not used to or accepting of working the way you and I are talking today. Um, I think we still need, there's never going to be a replacement from that personal contact and the trust that you build when you're with people and see each other regularly. But we also need to live more gently on this earth. And that includes how we move about. So from commuting and employers now saying, hey, maybe I don't need an office building. People can work from home and we can support them to do that to people like me who are traveling all over the world using, um, you know, jet fuel, but also potentially super spreaders for these kinds of things. Um, we need to think about how we do commerce, how we do science, how we do everything and reduce our footprint on the planet and be more gentle. Mm -hmm. Living more gently, I think that's a beautiful message. Jonna, thank you so much for your time and all of your insights. You've been so informative and this was such a pleasure talking to you. We are so lucky to have you on GLF Live. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLF Live. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, visit our website at globallandscapesforum.org. We'll catch you again next week.